Well, it is that time of year again when I visit. <laughs> so, but it is always a pleasure to see you and uh, to be with those that I've now known for many, many years. Uh, Brent here, uh, Brent has been here for uh, over sixteen years now. And uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. The cardinal rule of a preacher is never say how long you've been there. So, somebody might get some strange ideas about what to do about that, but. Uh, I don't think that's the case here. <laughs> so it is, uh, but it's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, this morning we we talked about Jeremiah and, and uh, quite a, uh, a text that uh, that is somewhat of a downer as we look at the sins of Israel and the things that God had decided that He needed to do to Israel to punish them. And of course, that is always an important part of our understanding of God, that we behold both the goodness and the severity of God, that we serve a God who has given us great mercy and grace. We also serve a God who is not going to tolerate it if we spurn that mercy and that grace, and we see that in the book of Jeremiah. So one of the things I want you to notice this morning is the opposite side of that. This picture that was just read for us on the pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, the pouring out of the Spirit. It's kind of interesting to me that that term, both pouring out of the Holy Spirit and just the term Holy Spirit, is used, of course, hundreds of times throughout the Bible, whether you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. And yet, that term makes us uncomfortable a bit, those of us in the 21st century and uh, and really... Uh, probably most people who have ever proclaimed Christ uh, since uh, the period of time, at least the last couple hundred years, we were a little uncomfortable, but we don't know what to think of that term. And we don't even sometimes, just the idea of the Holy Spirit is a bit mysterious to us. And it's sad that that is the case since it's quite evident that in the first century, these people were quite comfortable with understanding what the New Testament writers were saying when they spoke of the coming of the Spirit or the pouring out of the Spirit or being immersed in the Spirit, that these were phrases that were so commonplace to them that we find uh, that the New Testament writers didn't even have to do much to explain them. Uh, we, we can look in vain to try to find a passage in which God just says, well, Henry, give me a, let me give you the book or the, or the group of chapters that explains to you what I mean when I talk about the pouring out of the Spirit. Well, you, you don't find it in the New Testament, at least. And yet we do in the Old. And that was the reason that these people understood what was being said. In fact, just to illustrate this even more, it is interesting that in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of those accounts starts with John the Baptist proclaiming to the Jews, this is it. The one who's coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And everybody was like, wow, this is great. And we are like, what did he say? I, I'm scratching my head. What, what, what was he talking about? And we just kind of read over it. If you're like me, for years and years, you kind of read it and went, okay, uh, let me go on because I don't get it. And I'm on, I, I just can't figure that out. And yet those in the first century caught it immediately. In fact, I, I think we would be safe to say that the 
idea of Jesus coming and pouring out the Spirit or immersing with the Spirit, that that was the foundation of the gospel message. It was the foundation of the gospel message. And it is, again, somewhat peculiar and disappointing that we have lived oftentimes so many years, myself included, as Christians without having a good understanding of what that means. So it is interesting too that when we read here in Titus 3 that we see this we see this picture of our salvation. Let's just hit that very quickly as it was read for us and just notice some of the things that are seen there. The first thing you notice is that salvation was not based upon our righteousness. In other words, there isn't anything we did that made God say, well, you know, I think I just need to save some of those people because look how good they are. I found myself at times reading even uh, Genesis chapter 6, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord and thought, well, God found a good man and therefore he saved him. Uh, No, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah accepted the grace. Noah certainly responded to the outpouring of grace that the rest of the world did not respond to. But Noah was not saved because he was a good guy. He was saved because he needed grace. And and that is the same thing you and I needed. And that's exactly what Paul points out here. It's not by works of righteousness that 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 we have done. He did not save us according to that. Secondly, we notice here that he saved us according to his mercy and he mentions two specific works, if you will, works of God, not our works, but two specific works of God that cause it to happen that God would save us according to his mercy. The first is this washing of regeneration. He saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. What a a beautiful way to describe us submitting to God in baptism. It is a washing symbolically in water, but it is a regeneration that takes place on the part of God. We are not the ones who, oh, somehow accomplished something when we were baptized. He washed us and regenerated us. He brought dead people to life. That's what he did. And so this beautiful picture of that, but that was not all. And again, here's where we concentrate oftentimes on the washing of regeneration. We seem to be able to grasp that. But then when he says, and he also saved us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who means poured out on us abundantly or richly. And we read that part and okay, now I'm lost again. I'm I'm getting a little fuzzy as to what he's referring to. And yet this is the second part of his salvation. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and he saved us by a renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, once we have been regenerated to life, there's something else that God needed to do that had to do with his overall purpose for us. As most of us understand, coming up out of the water of baptism did not automatically make me a different person from before when I went down into that water. I came up just about as 
crummy a person as when I went down. (laughs) And I needed some renewal. I needed some change in my life. And the Spirit is about making that change and thus my salvation does not end at the point of being regenerated. There is a renewal that has to take place. And I I have to say, we Christians have oftentimes made a huge mistake in thinking primarily about the point of our salvation. Or thinking primarily just that God came to do one thing and that was to save us. I mean, after all, we sinned and God sat up there in heaven and scratched his head and said, Wow, you know, I'd look like a really bad God if I didn't do something about this. So Jesus, go and you go die for him and everything's now cool. But that's not what it was about. That's not what God was doing. God was recreating us in the image with which He created us in the beginning. In His image. And we flawed the image. And God now is creating us back in that image so that we will be to the praise of His glory as is spoken of in Ephesians chapter 1. So we see this poured out now. The Spirit is poured out on us. The ESV says uh, richly. The older versions say abundantly. Well, what, what is he talking about here? What does that mean? It is certainly a statement that removes any doubt as to whether or not every Christian receives the Spirit poured out abundantly upon them. Uh, If you're like me, you've been around a while, you've heard people say, oh, you know, well, the uh, people aren't immersed in the Spirit today. That was just something the apostles got and says, well, I don't know what you're going to do with this passage. All Christians here are saved by the washing of regeneration and the Spirit being poured out on them abundantly, richly. Well, what do we mean by that? What is that about? Well, that's what we want to discover then this morning. Notice one other phrase in the text. Poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Now that's significant as we will see. Jesus is the one who pours the Spirit out on us abundantly. It is the work of Jesus to pour the Spirit out on us abundantly. And so we need to be aware of the work of Christ in pouring out the Spirit on us abundantly, which is a part of your salvation and my salvation. So I would suggest that it's pretty important we understand that since it's a part of our salvation and since it's a purpose of God and a work of God that we certainly need to discover what that means. All right, so let's start with this. Why does the Spirit need then to pour, uh, pour out uh, uh, on us abundantly? Why is He poured out that way? What is that really talking about? So let's begin with this. First off, I would suggest we need to understand what the word or phrase Holy Spirit means. Have you ever given that some thought? What does Holy Spirit mean? <laughs> uh, you say, well, uh, that's like saying, what does berry mean? Uh, it's a fruit, right? That's, well, that's what my mom did. She looked down and she says, it's a fruit. I'll call it berry. I don't know. Uh, but uh, that's not the way God works. 
When God gives names, He gives descriptive terms. And we know this because, like when you look at the name Jesus, as uh, the Matthew account pointed out, His name should be called Jesus because He will save His people from His sin, from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah or Yahweh saves. And so call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God gives himself names that are descriptive of what he does and who he is. And so when we see the name Holy Spirit, we need to understand this is just not some kind of phrase. Unfortunately, our old King James versions that a lot of us grew up with said Holy Ghost. That was even spookier. What in the world's the Holy Ghost? And uh, so that, that gave us even greater problems. But God has a reason for the name. And so I'd like you to consider something. For example, the word Yahweh is the name that was given God gave himself and referred to the to uh, Moses to tell the children of Israel. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush and God said, I want you to go deliver Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. And what did Moses say? Well, he said, who shall I say sent me? And God says, you go tell him I am sent. And later he, he expands on that to refer to himself as Yahweh. It's a covenantal name, meaning I am the, I am the God who always keeps my promises. I am steady, steadfast, covenantal. I will always follow up on everything I promised, which would fit all the way back to his promises to Abraham. So he gave a covenantal name. It's a name by which we know him even to this day and is one of the primary names, of course, used concerning God in the Old Testament. Now, the word spirit, as in Holy Spirit, or anytime you see this word spirit used, it has to do with exhaling breath. In fact, the Hebrew term even kind of had a guttural, breathy sound to it, ruach. And, and you refer to, to like giving of life. It is, it is certainly the picture that you, that you get when in Genesis 2 verse 7, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life indicating the giving of life. And so when God breathes, there's life that is given out by that breath. We, we have talked about that for years in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or the real literal there is breathed out of the mouth of God. Scripture is life-giving. The words of God are life-giving. So when we see this word spirit, we need to understand that it understand that is the idea of breath going out. If you watch <clears throat> or at the bedside of someone who, who passes from this life, what are you watching for as they come to the end of their life? I've sat at bedsides many times and very typically suddenly you see it's five seconds between the breaths, then 10 seconds, then 20 seconds, then 30 seconds, and then finally it's done. The breath indicates that life is gone. In the same way, God symbolizes life by this idea of breath or spirit. And it's translated both ways in the Old and New Testaments. 
If you look in Ezekiel chapter 37, give you a little idea of that. Ezekiel was writing during the time in which the in which the children of Israel were in captivity. The nation of Israel was completely dead. And you might remember if you're a student of the Bible, the, the this passage in Ezekiel 37 where uh, Ezekiel is given a vision of a valley of dry bones. Those dry bones were a symbolic of the nation of Israel, which was dead. But please understand, it was not just a symbol of the physical nation that was dead. It was a symbol of the deadness of every individual, both in Israel and ultimately throughout all the world. Because when he brings it to life, he later in chapter 37 talks about how the Messiah would reign over those who are brought back to life. So that includes us. So as you as we read this picture, think of yourself as being the the dead bones, dry and lifeless and without any hope of life in this world. And you'll see a picture of what God has done. 37 verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out into the out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, there's that word again, that word breath right there is the word also translated spirit, so note that. He said, uh, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. There it is again. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, (laughs) prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And they stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. All right, now watch this. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up. And our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. He's not talking about an actual physical resurrection. He's talking about the resurrection of the nation here and of the people spiritually. Now verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you. Same word as been this word breath all the way through. Depending on context, God will translate it either. It'll be translated either breath or God will be referring to the Holy Spirit. In this case, he's putting his spirit in them. This is referenced in Titus chapter 3, our text. 
that the Spirit is poured out on us abundantly. So you're already getting an idea. I'll put my Spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So initially, when we read this, we would say, okay, well, God pouring His Spirit out on us abundantly, then is the idea from what we get in Ezekiel is bringing us dead back to life. And His breathing into us, giving us His Spirit, is that idea of life indeed. But let's understand this a little bit more. The Holy Spirit has far more to do with us than simply regenerating us and bringing us back to life. By the way, you may already be thinking of a conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And I'm not going to go into all that, but I'd just like to insert that in your mind. Keep that before you. Jesus, of course, told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, I'm not understanding that. And Jesus said, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So he puts that together again, just like Paul did in the book of Titus. So you add that to it. Okay? Notice now, think about the Holy Spirit back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. What do we read? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the what Spirit of God moved across the waters. Well, what is that inserted for? Well, we, because the Holy Spirit is taking this canvas, if you will, that God has created, and He is beginning to give life to it, and He's putting things together, and He is operating in the work of creating as He puts all this together. Job said this, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. These ancients understood That the Holy Spirit was part of bringing us life. That's who He is. That's what His name means. That's, That's what He does. You would be safe in when you read Holy Spirit, whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you need to think about His work of bringing life. Sometimes it's just revealing His words. I say just, but His word is what brings life. It reveals God, and this is life-giving to us. All right, let's go on from there. Jesus makes this statement in John 6 and verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus is giving that same kind of picture for us as he describes this idea of the Holy Spirit. All right, so once we've seen that, ask, we need to just think about this. Okay, just like those dead bones, we are the same way before we come to Christ. And we need life and we need the pouring out of the Spirit in order to bring us life. So what does the poured out mean? Poured out has to do with abundance. And and in fact, he even says, a poured out on us abundantly. So you're not getting the idea of, of taking a pitcher of water and just 
pouring a little bit out. Every now and then my wife makes me, when she's gone, makes me water the plants around. And I fill up a pitcher and I'm dismayed that I have to go fill it up a number of times to, because it's not enough. This is a pouring out that is much grander scale than that. In fact, if you'll take a look in Isaiah chapter 32... Isaiah will give us an idea of the significance and the extent of this pouring out. Ezekiel, I mean, Isaiah chapter 32, and this is in the midst of Isaiah talking about the judgment on the nation of Israel and how he's going to take this nation and he's going to turn them into a wilderness. So this goes along with what we saw with Jeremiah. He's going to... He's going to uh, curse them and condemn them and he's going to turn them into a wilderness so notice beginning in verse 8 we'll get a little description of that Isaiah 32 8 rise up you women who are at ease hear my voice you complacent daughters give ear to my speech and a little more than a year you will shudder you complacent women for the grape harvest fails the fruit harvest will not come tremble you women who are at ease shudder you complacent ones strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all joyous houses in the exalted city, the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Here is a picture of a nation that has become desolate, that no longer grows vineyards or trees or fruit. There's, it's all gone and just thorns and briars that have come up. And yet then in verse 15 he says, that's all going to be that way until, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings in quiet resting places. What happens when the spirit is poured out? Suddenly everything changes and life is given to the land. So you get a picture of the land just being flooded with water because there's the figure of speech, the metaphor, it's flooded with water and life then is given to a nation that God had before made desolate because of their sins. Perfect picture of us. Of course, this text is talking about us. It is talking about those who come to the Messiah and how He has given us, He's poured this abundance out on us. So the idea of the Spirit poured out is a figure of speech. Uh, Way back 50-some years ago, I learned about a metaphor, (laughs) right? And you have too in school. I think they still teach that. Let's hope so. And and so we learned that this is a picture of something. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is an individual. He is a person. He is part of the God family. He doesn't change into water and then just get poured out. So it's a picture of the pouring out of this life-giving water that brings everything that was dead back to life. 
That's the idea of, uh, of what we see. Now, let's notice this. We, we already mentioned that the Spirit is poured out through Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, how does that happen? Uh, part of that verse was read during the Lord's Supper. But let's go to Romans 5 again. I want you to notice something that our verse divisions really foul up. Romans chapter 5 and beginning at verse 5. We get an idea of this poured out and of the work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5 and verse 5. Now, I have to urge you to uh, ignore the uninspired parts of your Bible. And you're probably thinking, I didn't know there were some uninspired parts in my Bible. Yes, there's billions of them. Every one of those little verse numbers is an uninspired part of your Bible. And uh, any of the notes you put in and any footnotes and all those are all uninspired. So you just want to ignore that to see the real message. So look what he says in verse 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, you never have to be, have to think in any way that your hope of eternal salvation is going to somehow put you to shame. In other words, on the day of judgment, you're going to say, ah, my whole life I hope for this eternal life, and here's this lousy, wicked person over here that mocked me my whole life for being a Christian, and now he's going to mock me even more because I didn't make it. <laughs> he says, no, your hope is not going to put you to shame. You're not going to be shamed by anybody. And here's why. Because he says... God's love has been poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for. Did you notice the word for that begins with that number six in your verse? For. In other words, how did the whole, did the love of God get poured out by the Holy Spirit who is given to us For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay. Now we get the idea. The idea of the pouring out of the Spirit, pouring God's love into our hearts by the Spirit, was done by the work of Jesus when while we were yet sinners, He died for us. In Ezekiel 36... He actually tells us that when He would put the Spirit in us, it would cause us to love Him. It would cause us to be careful to obey Him. It would cause us even to loathe ourselves for our sins. To be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. We would become poor in spirit instead of arrogant. We would mourn for our sins instead of exult in our sins. We would then understand the love of God poured out by the Spirit. And how would would He pour that love out? The Spirit would pour that love out through what Jesus did. The work of Jesus and the cross is what changes us, is what comes into us and produces in us the kind of person of renewal that we need to become. That's what changes you and me. When you think about why you came to Christ, 
And if we went around the room and I just asked you, okay, what, what, what triggered your, your desire to come to Christ? Probably every one of us are going to first and foremost say, because I didn't want to be lost. <laughs> I, I didn't want to go to hell. But hopefully, and this is where hopefully you were old enough where you understood this, hopefully the more important part of that was you recognize the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You recognize that He did something to save you from that eternity apart from Him. And that His sacrifice and offering poured God's love into your heart that caused you to want to serve God and love God and turn to God and become like God. That's the real idea. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And therefore, when John the Baptist comes along and prepares the way for Jesus, his announcement of the one who is coming after me, this one who's coming after me, he is going to baptize with the Spirit. I'd like you to notice two passages very quickly here. In John chapter 1, And verse 32, just notice how John announces this. John 1 and verse 32. John John says, well, I'll read verse 31. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Picture yourself as a Jew listening to John the Baptist. And John says, Here I here's how I knew who the Messiah was. God told me that when when I would see the Messiah would be the person upon whom the Holy Spirit came on and I would know that it would be Him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now if you're a Jew, you're reading that and you're saying, whoa. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit? That's fantastic. He's the one I need to turn to. He's the one I need to follow. That's the reason Peter and Andrew and James and John turned to follow Jesus and left John the Baptist. He's the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's going to give this life. He's the one who's going to pour the love of God out into my hearts. He's the one who's going to change everything. This is the same thing that Matthew talked about in Matthew chapter 3. And, and Matthew 3 and verse 7, John said, expands on this thought. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say with yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown at the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Everyone knew that when the Messiah came, there was two things he was going to do. He's going to bring judgment on the rebellious. And there's the fire part. And he's going to bring gathering and salvation to those who would not be rebellious and who would serve him. We have an unfortunate translation. Baptize. It's not a translation. That's why it's unfortunate. King James people decided just to transliterate baptizo, the Greek word, and just made baptize. So that every, every English-speaking person from that time on would be befuddled as to what in the world it was talking about. Look at the words. The one who's coming after me will immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will immerse you with the Spirit. Does that sound like poured out on you abundantly? Does that sound like what God was going to give every Christian? Yes, He's the one to do that. By the way, there's no apostles standing here. The tradition has been to read this and say, oh yeah, I was talking about the apostles. My, would you please go back to the text? The text is not talking to the apostles. He's talking to Pharisees and scribes. He's telling them, here comes the Messiah. Here's what the Messiah is going to do. You need to get ready. I'm just preparing the way for you. I'm trying to get you ready for this very thing. So, when we read Acts 2 and verse 38 and 39, and the people said to Peter after hearing the whole sermon of Jesus and the death on the cross and His resurrection For their salvation, they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and let every one of you be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and your descendants and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. And we concentrate on repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And I don't know what else he said there, but what he said at the rest of that would have stimulated those Jews far more, I think, than even the idea of forgiveness. You're about to receive the promise. You're about to receive the whole pouring out of this life and the blessings that come through Jesus Christ. When we read in Ephesians 1 that in every that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places we have been blessed with. He's talking about the pouring out of the spirit. When he says that he chose you before the foundation of the world To be holy and blameless before Him. He's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit. To have that all happen. Everything that God has done through Christ is summarized in this little suitcase word. Pouring out of the Spirit. You have to unpack it to see the whole picture and how and what God is doing through that. Israel had waited 1,500 years for this event. Talk about rejoicing. Talk about exciting. This was the reason that this was so important to them. Now, listen to the words of Paul in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, 2, Paul chastises the Galatians for going back to thinking that salvation was by works of the law. 
by making a little list of things we ought to do and making the list so easy that it would be possible actually to fulfill it and pat yourself on the back and say, I'm right before God. He said, did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? And we today read that and think, uh, you mean the Holy Spirit came inside me and that what we're talking about? No, your brain is not, and my brain was not working correctly in, con- in concluding that because we didn't understand the phrase from the Old Testament. When he said, did you receive the Spirit? He was saying, did you receive all the blessings that I ever promised you, that God ever gave, the promise to Abraham, the promise of you being the offspring of Abraham, and all that would come through that. Did you receive all of that? By following some list of works that you made up. Or did you receive it? By the hearing of the faith of Jesus Christ and following Jesus Christ. How did you, you get this? How did you get all those blessings? Well, the, the question was rhetorical. And it was obvious to those Christians exactly how it, how it happened. The Spirit poured out on us abundantly. That means we have a new and everlasting kingdom. A kingdom not like the nation of Israel that would be passing away. We are in a new kingdom. We have been raised up with Christ. Ephesians 2.6 Have been seated with Him presently, ladies and gentlemen. Presently we are seated with Him in the heavenly places, with Him on His throne. He swore to us because He could swear by no greater. He swore by Himself that He would save us and bless us with that pouring out of the Spirit, Hebrews 6. He told us that through us, the offspring of Abraham, the world would be blessed. You are a light of the world, Jesus said. You are a city set on a hill. Do and live as those who would exalt God and give glory to God. We are cleansed every day by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's the pouring out of the Spirit abundantly. We never have to worry about whether or not we're going to be saved. When we stay with God, He is going to pour that blood out on us all the time and forgive us. And the Spirit then produces in us, Galatians 5.22, His fruit. He causes us to become the picture of the image of God. There. How did He save us? By the washing of regeneration and the pouring out and the renewal of the Holy Spirit which He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and I right now are in a process of renewal. Now the our, our, our side of this is don't be rebellious. Draw close to Him. Learn about Him. Know Him. I mentioned to Brent yesterday, if you took out all the commands of the Bible, how much of the Bible would be left? Take a wild estimate of it. Probably at least 90% of it. So, um, how about we just chuck the other 90% and follow the commands? Is that God's will? No. God is asking us, as we studied in Jeremiah this morning, 
Don't just do the sacrifice. Don't just think about the command. Realize who He is. Draw close to knowing Him. And the more you know Him, the more you will be generated to become like Him. And the more you're like Him, the more you're going to love Him. And the more you will honor and glorify Him in the world. You have been poured out with the Spirit abundantly. If you're not a Christian, that's where that begins. Every person needs to be washed and regenerated. And then the renewal of the Spirit poured out on them abundantly. We gradually start that change as we become more and more like Him. You can do that this morning. You are in any way subject to God's invitation. You understand your situation and you know that you need to get rid of your sins. You have that opportunity. We encourage you to make that, make that uh, note and step forward. And while together we stand and while we sing.